This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. All right, let's get started. It's 11 o'clock, so if Nextdoor hasn't caught up, that's their own damn fault. I'm a kind and caring person, trust me. All right, um, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce onto the stage for this next talk, Andrew, uh, who's going to be talking about some work that he's been doing to help us understand the way we think we think rather than necessarily the way we actually think, although I think that's where we're going. Um, but please join me in welcoming Andrew to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, terrific to follow Mesh's talk, actually, because uh, he finished off with five design principles, uh, the first of which was knowing your customer. Just, to, just before I start, how many of you in your designing for users do you think not just about what the user thinks about, but the way in which they think? Show of hands? Okay, great. Like a, a fair number there. That's essentially what we're going to look at, at here. Spend a few minutes just thinking about the way we think and what the implications of that are. Um, how do you think? When you think about your own thinking, what do you think is going on in your head? How do you think about your brain? Do you relate to any one of these pictures? Um, do you have a, a library in your head that you access, facts? Do you have experiences that buzz around in your mind that you access? Is there a sort of a machine there that's happening? In actual fact, um, when I did a search for some images on Google um, about thinking, uh, a large number of those images had cogs and gears in the head. I kind of thought, oh, that's interesting that large numbers of images would be like that. In actual fact, over time, over history, there's been a long um, evolution of the way in which we think about thinking, and mostly it relates to how we make things or what we do in terms of making things. The earliest sort of thinking um, came from thinking in spiritual ways and thinking about fluids and flow and how water flows and how things um, move. And so we have this sort of hydraulic notions of the brain or the mind. It wasn't until we get to about the 1500s that we start getting these sort of mechanical ideas of the mind and how we think. Then, of course, around the 1700s, we start to think about the brain in sort of electronic ways, like connections of wires and connecting electronic things from one to another. Then about around the 1940s, we start to see this notion of the brain as a computer. Is anybody noticing the pattern that we're seeing here? You see, as the technology advances in society, society is kind of using the technology as a metaphor in which the way in which they think about the mind and the way in which they think about the brain. What I'm going to sort of suggest in this talk is the computer brain and a recent evolution of that of thinking about the brain as sort of information processing has really dominated general thinking, the way society thinks about the brain and the mind and that kind of thing for the last number of years. And that has some implications 
for the way in which we do things generally. And I'm suggesting it has some implications for the way in which we design things, particularly when we're designing things that have technology and humans interacting. So, of course, if that's not the case, if the brain really isn't like a computer, if we don't think like computers think, and yet we're designing for brains that think like computers, then maybe um, that kind of thinking affects the way we design things. Robert Epstein, not so long ago, wrote an article in E.ON which was quite interesting, you know, basically stating this point that the mind uh, is, you know, is not a computer, right? It's not full of stuff. He took, I think it was entitled The Empty Mind or The Empty Brain. Um, and one of his key statements is that young babies are born with pretty much everything they need to make sense of the world, but it does, their brain doesn't include that kind of stuff doesn't include information, data, rules, you know, um, you know, representations of things, algorithms, any of those kinds of things. So we're going to kind of explore that idea a little bit. I'm going to leave it there and we'll, we'll come back to it. To explore this, I want to take a fairly common user experience that lots of people experience because this will help us sort of unpack um, something that I think is important in the way in which we understand thinking and the way we think about thinking. And that's the experience of a speedometer in a car. So what does that speedometer represent? And then if it represents something, I'm guessing most people are going, it represents how fast the vehicle's going, right? Um, what does it actually mean? Is the meaning the same as the representation? Is speed the meaning? If you look at the actual image, which I actually looked into to see what kind of car that was, and Aston Martin DB9 for those who are interested, um, I'm kind of looking at it and kind of going, okay, if I was travelling at 50 kilometres per hour around Brisbane streets, I'd hardly be able to tell that the actual needle moved off zero, right? Um, what, what does the Aston Martin Speedo say to the user? Right? What? It's going up to 330 kilometres an hour. So here's the thing. Does the representation, we know the speedo represents the speed or how fast the vehicle is moving, does that directly result in the kind of meaning that you and I get when we look at it and we kind of think about what does this mean for us? So does, the, does it mean when we're doing 120 kilometres an hour, does that mean we're going 10 kilometres over the highway speed limit? Or does it mean, oh, we haven't even got started in this car that can go up to 330? Back in 2005, the Queensland government ran a campaign against speeding, and the campaign was titled Every K Over is a Killer. It was quite a well-researched campaign, and um, it was reasonably successful, particularly in terms of people's perceptions of you know, driving safety and all the rest of it. But what does kilometres in this campaign actually mean? What are the, what's the Department of Transport trying to get... Um, the users, if you like, to associate with meaning. 
Well, I'd argue that they're sort of trying to say that um, kilometres right, over the speed limit are basically killers, kilometres, right? They want to associate sort of danger and death and all this kind of stuff. So they're not associating speed in terms of kilometres with some sort of absolute scientific measurement of the vehicle. They're trying to get people to associate that with a safety message and the risks associated with that as a safety message. But when it comes to the people, what does that message actually mean? Like when the when you know this guy in his hot up car is thinking about the speed, what's in his mind? What's the meaning? Is it a safety meaning? What about these people? What about this guy? You see, the the experience of the relationship between the speedometer on the dash, right? and what it actually represents in terms of speed, if we look carefully, it doesn't have a lot of bearing on what that meaning necessarily is. And that meaning can be different for a whole heap of different people. Not only that, the meaning can change when you bring in the context. When we start to think of uh, what's around us. So if we were traveling at 60 kilometers an hour um, in, Sorry. If we're traveling in 60 kilometers an hour on the photo on the left, where there's snow and sleet and ice on the roads, what kind of meaning would that have, even if that was the speed limit? What about if we're on the open road? What about if we're on a winding road with signs that said it's danger? So intuitively, we know that this context actually brings about a different understanding of what the actual numbers are telling us on the speedo. So when we talk about the user experience with the speedo, right, where is the meaning actually occurring? Do we get this representation of speed and then the meaning flows from that? I'm suggesting, in actual fact, a lot of the meaning doesn't come from that at all. A lot of the meaning is coming from other factors, the type of person and what, how they view cars and you know, what they like with cars, the kind of conditions, the context, that sort of thing. So if we, if we when we were designing the Speedo for a car, we sort of said, well, actually, in fact, what we're interested in is we're interested in giving this information to the driver because we want them to be able to drive safely. So instead of we actually designing something that just takes it to the representation level where we're representing um, speed, what if we take it further into the meaning kind of level? I think this also links a bit to Mesh's talk where he's talking about sort of answers rather than pages. You see, if we present a page to the user, the user has to make the meaning for themselves. Right? If we present the answer, then potentially the meaning's right there. When it comes to the speedo, though, this is a big risk because if we present the speedo and their mind's not on safety at all, right, it could be on, hey, I'm only travelling at 100 and this car potentially can go 300 kilometres an hour. Let's see what, what it can do. Right? We're allowing the user to make the meaning for themselves. There are other situations where maybe it's not necessarily a good idea to leave all the meaning-making up to the user. 
In the car scenario, just think for a second, what would it mean to um, design, redesign the car in a way that you're presenting them with a kind of a safety dial rather than a speedo? How safe are you going? You know, with warnings if you're not... Well, it'd kind of mean more than just the speed, right? Somehow you'd have to know the driver and the driver's capability on the vehicle. You'd also have to know the vehicle's capability. You'd also need to know what the conditions are like. Well, this is sounding like whole-of-system redesign just to sort of facilitate a change in meaning. So if you think about this link between representation, like the how we represent something, some information, to meaning, when we're talking about the speedo in the car, most of that path, where does it exist? It mostly exists in the user's head, right? If we were to design that future scenario I was just mentioning about, where would the path exist then? Well, potentially it would exist within the technology or the system, right? A lot more so than the user. Obviously, the user could still choose to ignore the safety you know, information that is presented to it from the car. That is, unless, of course, we're going to automated vehicles where the car totally makes the decisions about the safety. The interesting thing is, as we push into kind of an AI-driven world, more and more of the meaning-making is shifting into the technology side of the equation, particularly in those areas where people are not particularly good at doing the meaning-making. So going back to our notion of the brain and whether it's a computer and those kinds of things, some recent um, work in embodied cognition, and when I say recent, the last um, couple of decades it's been evolving, but more recently in neuroscience, has suggested that in actual fact our brain works much more by creating um, not representations of things that we see but kind of constructing meaning of those things based on kind of learned principles like shapes and metaphors and image schemas and those sorts of things that we learn by living in the world and by interacting with the world. So uh, the way we live and interact with cars and speed and all the rest of it is likely to affect how we interpret the meaning of the speedo, potentially much more so than an advertising campaign from the Queensland government. The other thing that recent research into thinking has told us about is that meaning construction takes time. Now, even words take time. This is hard for us to perceive because as I'm talking, you're kind of instantly making meaning of what I'm saying. And if I just say one word, even that one word, you can understand, particularly if you're a native English speaker, understand it pretty much immediately. But in actual fact, what scientists have found is when they look inside the brain and what's going on, it can take up to half a second for your brain to construct the meaning from a word, just one word, and then build that in a sentence and a paragraph and those sorts of things. This is not fast. Um, so the slow speed of this is potentially, um, you know, impacts... The, the, what we can achieve in, at a meaning level. 
Uh, put that on, contrast that with some technology aspects of things that some things can be processed super quickly, like in milliseconds or even fractions of milliseconds. If we can achieve the same level of outcome of meaning doing that computationally, then there's potentially a way for human and technology to work together that where the technology can take advantage of what it can do quickly, right, and letting the humans do other things um, with their time. We can put that aside for a second. Let's just pause and just think about a couple of the implications. Sharing meaning making between humans and the technology, between computers. What does it mean when you're designing something to consider a shared meaning making experience? Sorry, we, we also talked about um, replacing slow human processes. Also, maybe what happens if we get this wrong? I think a lot of the talk about AI and threats of AI is people thinking about when the technology malfunctions in this kind of space. Nevertheless, the message here is not whether this is a right or wrong, but I'm kind of suggesting that when we change the way we think about our thinking, it also changes the way the w we think about how systems are designed between humans and computers. I'll give you a really brief example of some work I'm involved in with text analytics. In text analytics, we want, we're doing this to help students. We're analyzing student writing with computers, and our aim is to give the writers feedback on their writers. These are student writers, and we want them to be helped by that, which means we actually want them to get the right meaning. We don't actually want them to come up with their own version of the meaning of something, because we're trying to teach them you know, to improve their writing, that sort of thing. So we want a sort of unified aspect of meaning. In some of the early work we did, we found that that meaning just wasn't happening, particularly when we were thinking about writing in terms of paragraphs and those sorts of things. I won't go into the details. If you want more about that, you can talk to me afterwards. But what we found is to overcome that limitation, we had to think about what we're representing to the user and where this meaning making was happening. And to, and to overcome the issue, we had to go back and redesign the entire analytic system down to fairly deep levels of how the software was structured, how algorithms were constructed, how data, data was represented in databases. So this user experience change to accommodate this meaning issue had deep architectural implications in the design of the system. So three key things, perhaps, for you to take away, to think about a bit more, and to provoke some questions, perhaps. Um, knowledge representation is not directly linked to meaning making. We can't just represent something on a screen or in an experience and expect that everybody's going to have the same meaning. Sounds obvious, but when we explore it in depth, it has some implications. Manipulation of these representations also has limited influence on meaning, as does manipulation of some of the contextual factors, like a speeding advertising campaign. And finally, I'm suggesting that meaning can be negotiated socio-technically. So in your design work, when you're interested in a kind of a specific kind of meaning in the, in the head of the user, then perhaps it's worth thinking about how the user's 
uh, thinking. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.